All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. I have a very special guest on the show today, Dr. Cynthia Kerson. Uh, Dr. Kerson is currently the founder and director of education for the Applied uh, Psychophysiology Education and professor at Saybrook University in the Department of Psychophysiology. She is BCIA certified in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and heart rate variability, and holds certifications as a diplomat in QEG and mentors applicants for all certifications. Um, Cynthia has published many articles and chapters on biofeedback and neurofeedback, and is the co-editor of Alpha Theta Neurofeedback in the 21st cent uh, century. Cynthia is the Vice President of the Board of Directors for the Behavioral Medicine Foundation and has served on the board of AAPB as Vice President of FNNR, the Foundation for Neurofeedback and Neuromodulation Research, amongst much more. So Cynthia, uh, welcome onto the show. Thanks so Thank much you. for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. So I'd like to get started just by kind of asking you what, what originally got you interested in this specific kind of biofeedback, neurofeedback in this whole sort of realm? What, what sort of piqued your interest? Mm. Um, well, m many years ago, um, uh, let's see, about 30 years ago, I was, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease and um, somebody, my massage therapist actually suggested that biofeedback could help me to kind of, you know, lower my, you know, the, you know, it's, it's a, it's an autoimmune dysfunction that makes your thyroid go really, really fast. And so I needed something to kind of calm me down. And so, um, she suggested this thing called biofeedback. I had no idea what it was. That was before Google. And I warned you my dogs would bark. <laughs> um, Anyway, um, so I um, went and did this thing called biofeedback. I found someone in my area who did this, and it basically uh, changed my life. Uh, it really was um, um, an amazing, um, an amazing learning experience about about self regulation and about how we are able to self regulate. It was just it was life changing, and so I kind of got myself um, back you know, from having Graves' disease, I had to do radiation and all this kind of stuff, did, you know, slow my thyroid down and all of that. But in the process, I really learned so many things about, like I said, myself. And so I was in the garment industry at that time, and I decided I wanted to get out of the garment industry and do something where I can help people, because it, I felt like my life was so dramatically changed by what I learned from, uh, from that um, practitioner. And so I did. I basically um, sold my business and went back to school at 38 years old as a freshman. <laughs> mm -hmm. And at 51, got my first PhD in applied psychophysiology. And a few years ago, got my second PhD in mind and body medicine. So um, that's pretty much the story about how I... Uh, got into the field. Right, right. And I want to back it up to, you know, when you first kind of went to that, uh, that practitioner and learned about biofeedback, at what stage was the field in? Because I'm guessing all of the, you know, the stuff regarding QEGs was probably, was it even, did it even exist at that point? This was in 1997. 
And uh, so QEEG did exist, the, pretty much the only system where the big, huge, clunky lexicores. Um, and, um, you know, so you obviously couldn't take your laptop and your little head box and, and go and record somebody because they were these big, clunky things. And um, there's actually an interesting story around that that I can share if you want. Um, sure. But anyway, yeah, so the QEEG existed, but very few people did it. Um, there was no certification at the time. Um, the, the guidelines for BCIA certification were much more lax. They were still kind of, you know, building their um, model about, about certification and, and later on international certification. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was, it was um, the system that I learned on isn't even available anymore. It's called the, the biointegrator. Um, which, which is actually the, the predecessor to the Nexus. Um, the Nexus was developed a lot uh, with that system in mind. But anyway, yeah, it was pretty primitive back then right. <laughs> compared to today. Right. Yeah. And so I'm curious then, so, say, so since 1997, you know, the past couple of decades, what have been some of the most exciting developments in your opinion in the fields oh, of biofeedback goodness. and neurofeedback, QEEG research? Yeah. Well, um, I, my first certification was in biofeedback and I, and I practiced biofeedback for about maybe three, four years before I then got my certification in neurofeedback. The things that have developed, and so most of my practice, I would say 85% of my practice was neurofeedback. I, I did biofeedback and I often did both biofeedback and neurofeedback together. And, and I, I actually sort of was the first person to you know, write a paper on that and, um, and got a lot of people interested in combined, thinking about both biofeedback and neurofeedback. Um, and then a couple of other papers were published and people started thinking about, wow, we could like be doing temperature and neurofeedback or muscle training and SMR and that kind of thing. So I, I, th I, I see that that's been an evolution and, and I think that's been good for the field. Um, the, the sophistication on um, assessing the EEG, I think has been tremendous. Um, there are differing opinions about how to assess the EEG, and we're, I doubt we want to discuss that <laughs> in this podcast. But, um, but uh, you know, all models are, have, have really um, advanced quite a bit. Uh, the mathematics behind um, taking a, a biological electrical signal and using mathematics to actually determine where it's coming from in the brain, whether it even now be subcortical, we can actually find subcortical. Um, uh, EEG behavior. So that would I, that's those are the things that I would say I'm most uh, pleased about in, in in the advance advancement of the field. Right, right. And it might be interesting to just kind of give um, if we could kind of give a brief you know overview I guess of the field of of neuro or biofeedback. Um, you know, most of the listeners you know now longtime listeners have you know, heard many uh, podcasts on, on these subjects, but, you know, as far as with, with neurofeedback, kind of altering uh, the electrical rhythms of the brain um, through this brain training, um, tell it, can you tell me a little about the different fields of thought? I know I saw, you know, you you did some work with, with the alpha theta neurofeedback. Um, you wrote some chapters in a textbook about that, uh, or the, you're the co-editor, correct? 
with that. And yeah, so, I wrote a chapter. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a chapter. Gotcha. So, so kind of, can you break down some of the different schools of thought and in, in terms of neurofeedback? Um, well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm about to actually uh, com complete the final edit. Um, for the last three years, I've been interviewing Joe Camilla. And so um, I'm about to um, release his, um, um, his story in his words. And it's a really, it's a really beautiful book. So the, the two, I say that because that's one camp, you know, the other camp is the, uh, the um, academics. And of course, the father of that camp is Barry Sturman, who is someone that I've worked with and taught with for years. So there's the two camps. There's the show me the data camp. And there's the so what does that really feel like to you, camp? <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, having knowing both of those guys as well as I do, um, I, I really appreciate the melding of those two. I think it's really important to have data behind um, um, uh, physiological or emotional or mental measures that we, we really can't quantify yet. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, where it would be great to see in my lifetime, it would be great to see where we can actually quantify, you know, mental, <clears throat> mental cognitive, emotional um, processes through looking at the data. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know if, uh, if you've worked at all with, with ERPs. Um, I recently just, uh, you know, heard about kind of the new, with the new kind of neurofield software now, you know, it's going to be able to, you know, sort of record ERPs and then be able to look at how, you know, different neuromodulation, whether that be neurofeedback, neurostimulation, how that can actually affect the ERP. And that's something when you mentioned kind of, you know, there, those two divided camps, it made me think about, you know, kind of traditional neurology and, and you know, their sort of skepticism sometimes of, you know, the QEEG, uh, you know, research. But then at the same time now with the ERPs having so much good solid data to back those up, if we can, if we can now in the future show how that changes with neuromodulation, I think that could be uh, you know, a huge con uh, contribution to the field. Absolutely. Um, uh, ERPs have been um, studied for 30 years. Um, I, I think it's wonderful that uh, Nick and Tiff are, you know, enjoying that part of the field. It's been around for a long time. Um, <clears throat> I actually wrote a couple of papers comparing uh, EEG ERPs with uh, fMRI. Um, in ADHD. Um, and um, so it's, it's been around for a long time. And of course, being able to look at those moments in the brain when the brain is uh, trying to decipher sensory information is, is really important in terms of, of you, know, um, you know, certainly for ADHD, for, um, for seizure, uh, not seizure, for um, traumatic brain injury. It's actually almost more diagnosing diagnosis what's what would be the term for that more, more of a diagnostic tool for for those uh applications um so uh i, I think it's great uh there's also um another group in 
uh, Pennsylvania that's been doing a lot of work with ERPs using the uh, WinEEG and MITSAR um, software. And there, uh, and of course, Yuri Kropotov has been working with ERPs for, like I say, 30 years. So um, it's a really important part of the field. It really is. Right. How about, you know, as far as within just the field of neurofeedback, you know, there's certain, you know, a, a one size fits all protocols likely not to, you know, work for everyone. And it seems like that's why there's been, you know, these different sort of uh, methods of training that have been developed. So I'm curious as far as if, you know, I know that this could probably be a very long discussion, but, you know, briefly, could you kind of summarize, you know, based on the research, based on your experience, you know, working with uh, patients, you know, which, which forms of neurofeedback work well for which brains? <laughs> um, you know, I, you know I, and I, students ask me that question all the time. Everybody wants a decision tree. You know, well, if, if, the, if the frontal lobe is blue, <laughs> then do this. If the, you know, parietal lobe is orange, do that. Um, and, I, and I always say, respond to the data, respond to your assessment, whatever it is. If it doesn't make sense that this person is diagnosed with ADHD, but they have this um, pattern that looks more like anxiety or depression or whatever, because you read in a book that that's what anxiety or depression looks like or ADHD looks like, don't, you know, think about the person. And maybe the person is misdiagnosed. Maybe they're is a major underlying, maybe the anxiety is the, you know, reason for the behavior kind of thing. Um, and so rely upon the, the, the data and, and you, you know, choose your protocols according to that. Um, of course, thinking about um, what the, um, um, you know, what the symptoms are and what the goals are of, of the patient as well. You know, obviously, if, you know, if you don't do an assessment and you do theta beta ratio training because that's what you wrote, learned in the book that you read because, you know, all ADHD kids have, you know, too much frontal alpha or theta, you could be making things worse um, because they could have, they could have, you know, a fast beta or they could have dysregulated alpha. And not only are you not doing what should be done, but you're also going backwards because it, in the case of spindling beta, if you're increasing beta, you're going to make this person worse. Just like right. it's the same thing like with medication. How many psychiatrists diagnose or, or, or you know prescribe medication without looking at the organ? It's you know <laughs> it's I, I work with psychiatrists. You know I mentor and and supervise and um, and consult and you know it just blows my mind that you know they're there they will they will prescribe a medication based upon the EEG. And it's just such a disservice to not look at the EEG before you prescribe a medication. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple points uh, related to what you said that I want to talk about. Um, first of which, you know, you're talk you, you mentioned about, you know, if you train incorrectly, you could actually make someone worse potentially. Is that something that, that worries you? Um, either now or in the future, as far as, as this technology kind of expands, more people get their hands on it, but people that may not necessar necessarily know what they're doing and they could actually, you know, make people's brains worse. 
Well, yes, they can absolutely do that. There can be so many adverse effects to doing bad neurofeedback or even biofeedback for that matter. The other thing that's really unfortunate about that though is that these people are doing bad work and so their clients aren't getting better or are getting worse and they stop coming and they tell all their friends, oh, don't do that. It, that didn't work for me. Mm. It was awful. And that's such a, it's a terrible thing for the field. You know, we are really, those of us in this field, our little pond, we're, we're just absolutely in love with this field. And we have all kinds of data and anecdotes and, and personal experiences that, that were, you know, groundbreaking and, and, and life saving and changing and whatever. And, you know, to, to have a, a person doing bad biofeedback um, and to have that kind of, of um, communication, you know, from the, the you know, uh, patients is, is obviously really incredibly bad for the field. Right, right. And then the second thing um, I kind of wanted to ask you as far as, um, I guess, as, as the field uh, sort of expands, you know, what, what different, uh, how, how are we going to see um, this whole field changing, do you think, you know, in the future? Well, one of the things that, uh, that I really appreciate from um, having my relationship with, uh, with Joe Camilla is thinking outside of the clinical box. In fact, the name of the book is Thinking Inside the Box. But, <laughs> um, but thinking outside that clinical box, you know, biofeedback and neurofeedback, you know, um, do, for self-actualization, for self-exploration is, is a beautiful modality. It, 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 it shortens the length of time that it takes someone to really get to know themselves because they can, they can get to know themselves through their physiology as well as through you know, their, their physiological reaction to emotions and things like that. And it could really speed up that process. Yeah. Right. And that, that's something that really interests me because I mean, I, I talk to patients about this sometimes, you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense to me. It's like, we, you know, we all go to the gym, you know, to train and, and, you know, strengthen our muscles. We don't only go when our shoulder hurts, you know, it's right. so, to me, I've always really been interested in that kind of peak performance aspect. So mm -hmm. you think that that area is going to really expand in the future? That area is majorly expanding right now. We actually, so you mentioned earlier that I'm a professor at Saybrook University in the psychophysiology department, which I am. I teach biofeedback, neurofeedback, advanced courses, neuroanatomy and physiology. Um, used to teach the stimulation technologies class, but um, um, uh, we just uh, developed a master's in uh, peak performance uh, for athletes, per performers, um, uh, uh, corporate, you know, that, that whole thing. We just mm -hmm. developed, we got approved, um, and we're starting to recruit for that master's program. Interesting. So, yeah, it's becoming very important. Yeah. Right. So this master's program, this is to train people who are hoping to, who are planning on working with these athletes, peak performers. Right. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there are quite a few, like most of the Olympic teams have uh, biofeedback practices um, and uh, as well as uh, some of, some of the, a lot of the U S football teams and whatever are, are really, 
uh, wrapping their minds around uh, understanding their physio physiology in order to, you know, stay absolutely present and in the game and, and right. advancing their their performance. Yeah. Right. I was super fascinated. I'm. I don't know if you've seen like uh, on that. There's a website totaltdcs.com, and they have listed uh, the specific montage, basically where the electrodes are placed uh, for those people who are listening. Um, where they found that the uh, DARPA, the Department of Defense, found that it doubled learning speed in snipers, which I thought was crazy. Doubled? I mean, that's... And from what I had seen, there's been some replication studies that seem to seem to back that up. Mm -hmm. So, However, with TDCS and, and you know, ex expanding on what I said earlier, you got to do an assessment. You don't just take a protocol out of the box. You got to do an EEG right. assessment and, and you might tweak it a little bit. You might change the frequency. You might change the location just slightly, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really important to do an assessment first. Right, right. Um, back to something that uh, we briefly uh, mentioned earlier, as far as, you know, the EEG and, and you know, practitioners prescribing uh, medications. I'm curious because it seems like there there's huge opportunity in that in that realm to um, you know look at okay this person's brain we you know we gave them a certain medication their brain you know on the EEG looks even more dysregulated maybe we should try a different medication that it, are there people doing that right now is that something that's going to happen more in the future what's your take on that. Um, I hope it's something that happens more in the future. Um, I'm not in clinical practice anymore. I haven't been for four years, almost five, four years. And, um, but you know, it, it was, it was just, I'm sure, you know, it was terrible when someone would come in, you know, being, you know, trying, you know, trying a new medication or whatever, and you can just see the progression of them, you know, giving them a, you know, I don't know, some medication that either makes them too drowsy because they already have a slow brain or makes them too hyped up because they already have a fast brain. Um, uh, yeah, so it, I think, you know, um, being able to, there were many times where I would like, you know, try to talk to the prescriber like, hey, you know, I've done a recording of this kid's EEG or this person's EEG and, it would probably make sense for you to try a different class of medication. And some were responsive and some were like, you know, like, who are you? What, mm -hmm. what, why do I want to even talk to you? Why, you know, that kind of thing. So that, you know, is really frustrating. It's very frustrating because we, we, we really do have a gold mine here and why we are so, I don't know, dissed by the medical field is, is just, it's beyond me. It makes mm -hmm. absolutely no sense. Right. What's your take as far as, um, you know, uh, I, I guess supplements or natural approaches, um, does that, can, can that modify the EEG in, you know, powerful ways as a medication could, or, um, you know, do you think that medications should still kind of be the, the, the first line approach for psychiatry and psychology? Um, I, I don't think that medication should be the first line of approach. I, I think teaching someone to self-regulate is, mm -hmm. is probably going to be a much bigger life uh, lesson, life, life skill than popping a pill to make your depression go away. Um, um, so I, I don't, I, but in terms of getting to your question about, mm -hmm. about supplements, 
yeah, when I when I have ever seen a really slow EEG, just a really low metabolism, a lot of delta, slow EEG, I would suggest you know uh, omegas, vitamin D, um, uh, vitamin Bs. You know, Bs are really great. You know, even get B shots. You know, to really kind of boost your 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 brain metabolism. So yeah, I, I think. I think everything that you have in your toolbox, you should use. There's no one, you know, protocol that, that everyone in some population should follow. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, and then I guess I was wondering, you know, as far as, you know, with, uh, you know, with the, the Q, with the QEG, um, and kind of evaluating the different, uh, I mean, there's so many different parameters, I guess you can look at. I'm curious as far as what's your take on, you know, Z scores versus more of the absolute, you know, raw data. Um, do you look at both? How, how do you go about assessing that? Yeah, I look at both and I teach to look at both. When I teach QEEG, I teach really how to read the EEG. Um, I don't go straight to the Z-scores. I look at the Z-scores, they're very important, but if they don't corroborate with the raw, I tend to trust the raw more. Um, and also I want my students to, when they're done with me, I want for them to look at an EEG and to not even have to look at a map or a spectral, to be able to read that EEG and have that information. And it's sort of like what, the way that I teach is like, okay, test yourself. What do you think this map is going to look like? And, and then you look at the map and you go, oh, I didn't see that, you know, that aspect. Let me go back to the raw and see what that looks like. So I think that, I think that in our field, it's, uh, you know, some people want to jump right into doing, you know, 19 channel Z-score training because that's the cool thing that people are doing. And I'm like, I'm not your right mentor I, I want you to learn you know why you would do a one channel eeg and do one channel eegs uh you know uh, neurofeedback sessions for a while because that is so foundational that's so important you skip so much important information and you rely too much upon the software to tell you what to do and so you're not smart enough i don't want to maybe use that word um you're not knowledgeable enough to to say wait a minute no i i don't think this is the right thing for this person you trust too much the software and this is just a math algorithm you really need to rely upon your understanding and your knowledge and your uh you know your observations of the patient too that's really important right what can you tell me about um you know head injuries especially kind of mild tbis and the the eeg because i know you know, again, there's kind of a division, you know, with neurology, you know, kind of treating this in a certain way. And then, you know, now people who are looking at this, at least from, from my work, it's pretty darn common to see, you know, people who've come in with, you know, lots of head injuries, oftentimes correlating with when their symptoms of depression, anxiety, ADHD kind of originated. Um, but they were never actually treated for that head injury. They oftentimes just went to the hospital, you know, got an MRI, they were told they had a mild concussion, and that was pretty much that. So, so how, how, what's the frequency of kind of you, you know, finding that 
uh, sort of in a clinical case? And then, um, you know, how, how do you think that should be approached? Uh, again, assessment, 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 <laughs> you know, um, and be careful because too soon after uh, a head injury, you know, the head, the brain is repairing itself. And so it needs, we need to give the brain some time. You know, if we did, a, if we did an EEG right away, we would see a lot of slow stuff because the brain is basically shutting down and using its energy to repair itself. And every, you know, people, oh, well, you know, let's get rid of all that theta. Well, you're getting in the way of um, the, the brain's repair. Um, and so I would usually wait a few months and then, uh, and because and the brain will repair very quickly if you allow it to naturally repair itself. And, and you'll be so many, so many, you know, uh, steps further along, and then you'll, you'll have a better idea about where the, where the pathologies will lie uh, after the brain, you know, starts, you know, boosting itself back up again. So, um, you know, yes, you're going to get um, uh, behavioral uh, correlation with, you know, frontal lobe as opposed to temporal lobe um, injuries, right? You're going to have behavioral changes, for, you know, depending upon where the injury actually occurred. Um, the, the hardest one to manage is a blast injury because a blast injury is the whole brain you know, being shook up as opposed to getting a whack on, you know, at your, you know, left temporal or something like that. So those are more difficult to manage. Um, so um, again, you, you know, you need to do an assessment. And when it comes to TBI, my, my feeling is you should give the brain some time to repair itself before you jump in. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, Cynthia, this has been great um, having you on. Is there anything um, you think that we haven't touched on um, as far as the field? Um, I think I've asked you all the questions that I was curious about. Thank you. Um, I just, I would like to plug Saybrook for those of you who are um, thinking about getting a PhD in applied psychophysiology. Um, Saybrook is a hybrid uh, distance learning program with uh, an amazing faculty. Um, some of the best people in the field teach in our program, and it's growing tremendously, and uh, we're a WASC-accredited university, so um, you, you, know, you, can, um, you can do a lot with what you would learn in that program. So I just I want to uh, uh, do that, and I already, I already plugged my, my book that's coming out soon, my Jokamia book that Tom Kalora and I worked on together. When, uh, uh, when can we expect that? I think within the next month. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be sending it to the um, the uh, publisher in um, probably by the end of next week. So that's awesome. Congratulations. I know. I've been working on this for three years, and you know what? I have to say thank you, COVID, you know, COVID nineteen, because I my 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 days got very different <laughs> with COVID nineteen, and I had the opportunity to sit down and get that book done. So right. there is lemonade made out of lemons there. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. One yeah. last question I have for you, you know, if, um, you know, if, if someone is listening to the show and is interested and, in, you know, they want to maybe, you know, visit a neurofeedback or biofeedback practitioner, um, you know, I, I kind of already have an idea of what you may say, but what, what, um, what kind of qualifications would you look for, uh, experience, how can someone find, you know, kind of back to the point of you don't want someone who doesn't know what they're doing, having this technology in their hands, 
and might you know actually make your brain worse. How should someone go about finding a good practitioner? So you're saying um, a, a, per, a prospective uh, patient client. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And someone could be peak performance, could be you know clinical. Right. Well, you know, Mike, I think you probably already um, assumed that I would say that, you know, look for certified people, go, go to the BCIA website and, and look for people in your area or Google it or whatever. Um, I also strongly suggest that you don't just find one person to, to interview. You can get on the phone and you can, you can talk to a few different practitioners and you'll get a feel for which one you, you, you know, vacillate with and, and which one sounds more educated. Um, you know, look at their, look at their credentials. Are they licensed? Are they, you know, is it, is it a, not that I mean to bash chiropractors, but is it a chiropractor doing some uh, neurofeedback thing that um, that they really aren't, they might be brilliant, lovely, you know, chiropractors, but they really might not have the neurofeedback skills that they need or the right staff to be able to, um, you know, to uh, uh, provide the, the modality in a way that it should be provided. Absolutely. Great. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show today, um, go ahead and check us out on YouTube uh, at Roscoe's Wetsuit. That is where you can see uh, both the, the audio and uh, video version of the podcast. You can also find just the audio on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Cynthia, again, thanks so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care.